because she did she did the podcast from the truck. Remember, like, committed, when she had that, I don't like, remember doing sound in truck. her room that she was in because of her like fun connection stuff that happens from time to time. Well, that's part of our service to our readers is we broadcast from trucks. <laughs> that's fine. Tough racket journalism. Anyway. Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by Rachel Sapin, reporter, John Evans, correspondent, Demi Corbin, reporter, and John Fiorillo, executive editor. Hello, everybody. Let's dive right in. Uh, Rachel... Interesting week this week. Um, you were on top of Glacier Fish's plans to uh, build up a seafood hub near Seattle in the in the port of Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. Tell us a bit about uh, those plans and uh, and and how they got off track. Well, I think in the way I initially wrote it, you know, I felt like they were Glacier's like best laid plans. They were gonna, you know, open this big awesome um uh this big uh kind of marine industrial park and move a lot of the pier 91 um that was their hope at least is to move the pier 91 fleet up there their ships um you know have a processing facility work with a company called pacific stevedoring based out of alaska to open a cold storage um and they were trying to get up to 67 acres of a former kimberly clark paper mill site that sat bacon and dilapidated and asbestos riddled um, in Everett for since 2012, I believe. Um, But apparently they kind of, kind of according to the Port of Everett, um, didn't have the highest and best use plan for that site. So last minute um, this past week, the Port of Everett came in and said, we're going to actually assign that land for eminent domain and we're going to take over it because we know what's best for the port of everett for the next hundred years and you know these private companies they haven't been able to to make anything work on that land since 2012 so it was a pretty heated meeting a guy fainted in it as i told you on the phone um not related to glacier or jim johnson but yeah um i mean it was a big story i think the everett herald the local paper described it as you know their plans being dashed so it's uh um not necessarily over but there could be a big legal battle ahead for glacier if they want to continue with that project so those that don't know the seattle region um maybe john Farrell, you could tell us a bit about um, what's happening in the Puget Sound region around Seattle and how that may be affecting the Alaska Pollock fleet and where they're based out of and a, and a whole range of other things. Um, but tell us a bit about the community that you've lived in for uh, for many, many years and, and what's what's going on that's that's causing these changes. Yeah, so like so many cities, you know, Seattle's going through a really um, robust growth period. Uh, a lot of tech firms have moved in and, you know, that's uh, com- what comes with that is lots of traffic and things like that. So uh, much of the factory trawler fleet is stationed down at Pier 91, which is um, pretty much in the heart of Seattle, Seattle Ballard neighborhood. And then some of it's uh, situated on Lake Washington, some vessels that um, also would participate so it's become the traffic has become so bad and they're tearing down 
something called the viaduct and that was a, a route that was used extensively by commercial vehicles and things like that that would you know service pier 91 and elsewhere so a lot of a lot of these guys now are thinking about getting out of seattle it's more expensive it's harder to operate there their employees can't afford housing uh nearby so the idea of this industrial park glacier you know was planning to kind of be the groundbreakers there but they had hinted several times and came out and said that they thought other parts of the fleet would relocate there so you know this this could have been and it still might be but this could have been a a big hub uh, and a relocation of a portion of the pollock fleet yeah, and it's part of a larger trend, you know, in the in the Pollock sector. We're about to kick off with uh, the bee season pretty soon here. But um, the entire fleet, there's been some changes to some vessels, some some small revamps, or uh, in the case of Aleutian Spray, actually a pretty large revamp for, for a fish meal factory to be added there. But um, just in speaking with uh, some of the executives, I talked to uh, to Trident CEO Joe Bundren, and and he was saying that um, you know this whole Atsi processing fleet, it it's a it's just a matter of time before we'll see some massive changes and upgrading of this fleet uh, for a range of reasons. Some of these vessels are quite old. Um, there's so much new technology that's that's come into uh, the harvesting sector, especially for these larger vessels that will make them more efficient, both at harvesting and more efficient in terms of operation. So um, for the for the companies, that's uh, that that's going to be a, a big boon uh, for their bottom line. So I think we can expect to see uh, we can expect to see that happening in the in the coming years uh, for sure. Um, shifting over to uh, fish meal, uh, fish oil, feed alternatives, um, uh, Teresa Logbergjord from Scredding, she's a CEO, she was at our New York City event. Um, John, you've covered uh, alternatives pretty extensively. Tell us about Logbergjord's opinions on what role feed companies should or shouldn't play in the hunt for alternatives. There was a couple of uh, alternative uh, one fish meal, uh, sorry, one fish oil and one alternative protein um, producer at the um, Interfish Seafood Investor Forum in, uh, in New York, and both with interesting propositions, and both who've spoken at length to Scretting. And um, Scretting are, as they've said, they are interested in both projects, but the the uh, dilemma facing companies uh, such as Scretting is trying to balance the need to make a profit against um, alleviating pressure on uh, wild fish uh, raw material sources. Interestingly, both companies have got um, new facilities opening up um, in the in the next. Well, in fact, uh, Protex is opening it now and. Um, the other one, Avera Maris, is opening its third plant um, in Blair, Nebraska, in mid-July. Um, but as I, as I said, it's uh, it's this balancing act that um, feed producers are trying to uh, engage in in uh, making a profit now, pleasing shareholders, and also looking to the future to, to protect the uh, raw material um, uh, resource. Yeah, and I think that that was an interesting thing that uh, that came up during that discussion was 
who who is responsible then for bearing that burden and and uh Log Berryord uh actually um addressed the salmon farming audience uh and challenged them directly and said hey we we have to be able to uh to make our margins uh we have to be able to make feed uh, affordable for the entire uh, chain so you need to get on on board feed accounts for around 70% of aquaculture companies costs or at least for salmon farming but always the the most significant cost for any aquaculture uh, tends to be feed so this isn't a this isn't going to be a small shift uh, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around it but uh, a big portion of these projects are are not going to make it um, commercially and, and there's a lot of interest but um, but but it's it's not going to be easy. Um, one thing that was interesting, I thought, was uh, also um, Ifo was there on hand, uh, Petr Johannesson, and and he kind of pointed out that in all this discussion, I mean, Ifo's really been trying to come to the table to have their voice heard because in all this discussion, it's easy to discount uh, the strides that are being made on pelagic harvesting. And when there is discussion about the potential and, and future of aquaculture, oftentimes uh, wild fisheries are pointed at as the reason why aquaculture is better. Um, and and Ifo, their argument is, well, wait a minute. Um, there are a lot of sustainable fisheries uh, that, that can be used in fish meal out there. There's a lot of improvements that are being made. Um, the wild fish resources, if you really start to dig and look at the uh, the main the primary resources that are used uh, in uh, in major aquaculture production, a big big portion of those are stable, well managed fisheries. Uh, first one that comes to mind is a Peruvian anchovy fishery. Um, so so that was an interesting perspective. Is with all the enthusiasm and excitement about alternatives, and certainly they'll play a big role. Um, fish meal and fish oil isn't something that should just be uh, thrown by the wayside. I think it will always uh, will always play a role in uh, in aquaculture. Going back to what you said uh, earlier about the uh, scratching CEO's comments, uh, Drew. Of course, uh, Vera Maris, as they pointed out, um, not just at the at the investor forum, but also uh, this week have been holding um, discussions with retailers, all, all um, members along the chain, if the value chain, if you like, parts of the value chain from the feed producers to retailers to farmers. And the result of that we saw this week with uh, a French supermarket, uh, Supermarché Match, um, launching the, um, the Vera Maris, uh, the Vera Maris um, algae-fed, uh, uh, using the algae-feed uh, protein um so yes i mean and, and they're desperately trying to bring in i don't think desperately is quite the right way but they they're actively trying to bring in uh, players along the value chain to, to, to make them understand why it's, it's sustainability is important and why they might have to pay a little bit for their feed but what the benefits will be um long term yeah that that was interesting that we've seen that on a few occasions that uh we've seen um, we've seen Carrefour promote, uh, promote some of it in, its insect fed, uh, uh, salmon partnerships. Um, so, so it's been, um, uh, there, there's been some interesting breakthroughs in having retailers 
try to promote the feed uh, into the fish that they're supplying. Whether or not that'll resonate with consumers, I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting tack, and it kind of feeds into uh, uh, what um, Logbergyod was was saying at the event. So, Demi, you looked at the Turkish and Greece bass and bream sector this week. So give us a little update on that sector and where things are headed there. The, the, uh, the picture isn't, uh, picture isn't great. So I spoke to Kantali who analyzes the bass and bream sector and prices for the species have been sliding for quite some years now. And they've actually reached the lowest levels now, almost 10% uh, less than last year. And the prices are actually expected to stay low throughout this year because there's a massive supply coming in from Turkey and it's just exceeding any demand for the species. Well, I'm not saying that demand isn't increasing as well, but it's just according to these analysts, they're not increasing at the same rate that they should be or at a rate that's more than the supply. So what are the producers then telling you the solution is here or what's Kantali saying this, the solution is for... For these low, uh, uh, these low prices. Well, they're they're saying that Turkish producers in general, who are actually rattling the market, should just decrease stocking of the species, and producers should also look into more niche markets. So we have a Spanish producer called Aquinario. They changed their name in 2017. They were actually called Grupo Tinamenor. And they're, ap- they're approaching the sector with a different strategy. They're more focused on smaller and what they call niche markets, mainly around the Middle East. So in the Middle East, there's a growing appetite for the species. And they're actually thinking of making their own farms there as well. So there's an interest from Oman who's actually trying to produce the species as well. I mean, another big, uh, a big factor that has shifted the landscape was, was last year, AmeriCapital, a private equity fund based out of New York, um, partnered uh, with Mubadala Investment Company, um, the Abu Dhabi-based fund, and they acquired Solanda and Nereus um, to restructure that sector. Um, And the the CEO, Dimitris Valakis, he he was very, very positive about how this is going to change the the face of Greek Greek, um, uh, aquaculture in particular. Um, so it, it seems that they're going to take a similar approach of focusing on more than just commodity pricing and trying to trying to beat the price of their competitor, but really focus on um, on producing um, uh, value added items and products that the market really wants. So um, Demi, you looked a bit into Mubadala and tell us a bit about uh, about the company because. They have at their disposal a lot of funds. Um, do you see them buying more either into bass and bream or into other aquaculture segments? Um, so far, you know, a small stake in, in Andromeda, but um, what might be next for them? So as you said, Mubadala, they're, they're actually a state-owned investment company in Abu Dhabi, and they initially started looking into the oil sector, but they they kind of target sectors that they see are growing in the future and since they're picking up on all the aquaculture debate and the growing aquaculture sector they decided to go into uh, the greek and andromeda uh, business and the reason for that as well in my opinion is that there's a lot of consolidation happening in the market 
And for them to be able to tap into this consolidation, they started with Andromeda, but they have an interest in uh, growing with aquaculture and investing more in aquaculture in the future. Just to um, give your thoughts on where the sector might go then, uh, Bass and Bream, in the coming months. Uh, The prices are going to remain low throughout this year, but generally speaking, it might change next year because... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, stocking uh, might decrease. And if stocking decreases, then the prices might rise again. Well, it is a boom and bust cycle, and it's been in bust for a while. So I expect the sector to boom soon. Great. Thanks, Demi. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this week. You have another Intrafish podcast under your belt. Remember that you can find the best in seafood news on intrafish.com. You can sign up for our newsletters there, and you can find us reporting there from around the globe 24-7. Quick reminder, we do have events coming up in August at Aquanor. We will have our Salmon Summit. And then in September, in partnership with DNB, we're going to have our London Seafood Investor Forum. So mark your calendars for those. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.